Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. So the NFL meetings are underway in Palm Beach. That's not one of my favorite things. One of my favorite things takes place at the owners' meetings in Palm Beach. A tradition unlike any other. The tradition of the NFL head coaching pick. The photo. It's incredible. This time of year, there's certain days you have to have on your calendar circled. Selection Sunday, MLB opening day, and the NFL head coach's photo. And the coach's photo is bigger than opening day. Because this is the first in-person coach's photo since 2019. And don't get me wrong, it's bigger anyway than opening day. It's one of my favorite things ever. Honestly, I could stare at that pick for hours. I could stare at that pick for days. But especially this time because we haven't had it since 2019. And man, because of that, it is so glorious. It's beautiful. I know the pandemic is still a thing, a serious thing. But seeing these guys together lets me know that maybe we have finally turned the corner. Nature is healing. These guys assembling for that photo. You know what that is? That's my Oscars red carpet. Forget what Andrew Garfield is wearing. I am way more interested in what one Andrew Ryad is wearing. This thing really does need to be covered like a red carpet. You know, like, coach, coach, just a couple, please. Coach, just a couple, please. Please, coach, who are you wearing? Who, coach, who are you wearing? And the answer for most of them, them is, like, whatever the hell I found in the bottom of my closet. You know, except for a few of the young guys that obviously care how they look. But for most of them, whatever the hell I pulled out of my hamper. Once you get these guys out of Nike coaching gear, a bunch of them really struggle. I'm talking big time. There was some serious dad core looks on some serious dad bods. And you know what? In a way, I'm kind of okay with that. Part of me has always wondered, how can guys be that out of shape and that sloppy when they're leading the fittest, most alpha-esque guys ever. Part of me wonders that. But then again, I'm not looking for 32 male models working the sideline like a runway. You're supposed to be the best coach, not the best dresser. And every single year, that photo proves that. And these guys deliver yet again, big time. The first thing I look for whenever that photo drops is my guy Andy Reid. What is he wearing? Is the tradition still alive? And you're damn right it is. You know it is. The big fella broke out the Hawaiian shirt. Of course. And he was not alone either. Ron Rivera went Hawaiian. But Reed topped him by going with shorts, which is awesome. An incredible look. I love the confidence of a head coach showing up in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts. And the guy's right. He should. My man should walk in there and strut in there like, yo, I'm in Palm Beach, mother bleepers. Of course I'm going Tommy Bahama in shorts. Gotta let them calves breathe. Gotta let them calves breathe. So Andy Reid and Cliff Kingsbury were the only two guys with the stones to show up in shorts. Baller move by both of them. Actually, let me correct that. Two guys in the photo 
are wearing shorts because Bill Belichick skipped the photo. But he was spotted in cargo shorts, sandals, and a multicolored long sleeve shirt. Because, of course, the hood was. Back to the actual coach's photo. So you've got two guys in shorts. Two guys went with jackets. And a bunch of guys went with some pretty regrettable polos. And the best part about the group is that just about everyone looks like they'd rather be anywhere but there. Except for the young guys who take care of themselves. Sean McVay looked pretty happy to be there. And then again, why wouldn't he? He's younger, fitter, and he's got a ring. Matt LaFleur, manicured as hell. In fact, he was probably like, hey, when are we taking that pick? What time is that pick? He looked like he wanted to be there. But he looks like he's pretty happy about how well manicured he is. Let me say about Matt Rule. Dude. Yo, coach. This dude looks like he slept on a couch and woke up like 30 seconds before and then went for the photo. It was like buttoning down his shirt and then got one of those buttons wrong. So he had a shirt that was like this, you know, like one side was much higher than the other because he misbuttoned it. Man, that dude did not look put together at all. Must be a hell of a coach. Must be pretty smart because my man looked like, well, he didn't look like an NFL head coach. I'll tell you that. In fact, everybody not named Sean McVay and Mike McDaniel looked like they wish they had pulled a Belichick and just bailed. Now, then again, McVay, the Super Bowl champ, is front and center, looking chill and relaxed in his shades and has spent some time in the weight room. McDaniel... This dude is a legend. Like, I cannot wait to talk to this guy. I've never spoken to this guy. I cannot talk to this guy soon enough. He's proudly rocking the undershirt under his shirt and not trying to hide it at all. And it's super apparent, too. I love it. Everything I know about this guy, I love about this guy. That look included. It's fantastic. Damn, Rome, you're spending a lot of time on this pick. Yes, I am. Do you have any idea how much I love this picture? Every single year. Now, the tradition of seeing the photo is not just about what everybody's wearing. It's about how everybody looks. And answering the annual question, we always get into this too. Like, if NFL head coaches were to get into a brawl, who'd be the last man standing? Or, I know some of you clones. I know how you think. Like, you think, I could take that guy. I could take that NFL coach. Or that's not a guy I want to mess with at all. That whole thing. So aside from how unhappy they are to be there, aside from what are they wearing, are they taking care of themselves? And physically, could you handle any one of them? And if they had to handle each other, who would be the last one standing? Look, if it comes down to having to go with one of these guys, and especially if it were to go down in the street, I'll put it to you. How many of them do you think you can handle? And then how many of them do you know that you wouldn't survive even 30 seconds in their world with bitches? You can't last two minutes in my world, bitch. All right. So for years, the undisputed champ of the coaches that you do not want to jack with has been Mike Vrabel. Former linebacker, tough as hell on the field, and still carrying himself like that on the sideline. And I'm not saying that's changed. Well, one, I don't want him to crack my skull. 
I'm not saying that's changed. I am saying, like anything else, there are some other guys coming for his belt, starting with Robert Sala. This dude shows up now. When you're looking at film of the coaches, Sala pops. That dude's big. He's in incredible shape. He's tough. He's intense. And the fact that he's standing right next to Vrabel makes that left side of the photo the last place you want to try. I don't think you want to mess with either one of those dudes. As for the guy that you think you could take, I'd be very careful about this. And I've had this conversation with some people who are in the know. But I would be very careful about running up in here and saying, the one guy that I know I could take is Bill Belichick. The hell you could. Do not let the cargo shorts and the sandals fool you. Do not let the age fool you. I know the guy's like a billion years old, but you're not taking that guy. And I'll tell you why. One, he's in a lot better shape than you think he is. Two, you know he's going to fight dirty. You know he's going to cheat. Fight dirty. Like, that's not even a judgment. It's a fact. If you go with this guy, I guarantee he's going to go with fish hooks, eye gouges, trachea blasts, blast to the package. You know, all the things that are not allowed in the UFC, they're all on the table with the hood. Because you know why? In the street, there are no rules. I guarantee the hood has got every last one of those things in his toolbox. The eye gouge, the fish hook, the trachea blast, the package blast. I guarantee it. And he'll use all of them. I guess in a way, looking at this crew... It's a pretty tough call because the group of coaches has gotten younger, right? It's gotten into better shape, right? They embrace nutrition more and rest and recovery. Like the days of like rich Kotite are gone. Like take Doug Peterson, big dude. A bigger dude than you think. When you see this guy standing with the rest of them, that's a pretty big dude. A little goofy, but you probably don't want any part of that. In fact, let me stop right there. I want to be very clear about this. I'm not making this about me. I don't want to fight any of these guys. I don't want any part of any of them. I want to be very, very clear about that. I'm not looking to fight any of these guys. I don't have beef with any of these guys. I'm just asking you clones. Do you think you could handle an NFL coach? Do you think you can handle any of these guys? Would you try any of these guys? Just so we are so clear about that. I don't want any part of them because A, I don't want my face broken. And B, I don't have beef with any of them. But I am asking you, if you had to take on one existing NFL head coach, who do you think you could handle? You'd probably say the guy who replaced Peterson in Philly, Nick Sirianni. Like, he seems too friendly. And he seems like he'd rather do rock, paper, scissors, or connect four than give you them hands. Rock, paper, scissors. Let's see how competitive you are. Does that guy sound like a guy who wants to go? I don't think. But I don't know. We don't really know any of these guys. But I'll tell you what I do know. I'll tell you one guy that I wouldn't want any part of. Colts head coach Frank Reich. Now, that might seem counterintuitive because Frank Reich seems like a really good guy. A really cerebral guy. However, let me finish the thought. Not only would I want not want any part of him, I wouldn't want any part of his boss or his coworker, 
GM Chris Ballard, not after seeing the way they continue to smash Carson Wentz, even though this guy's gone. Remember, they traded smash, smash, smash. They traded Wentz three weeks ago, and they are still piling on this guy. Ballard said he does not regret bringing Wentz in, but did add, quote, look, I mean, Carson was productive for us. Let's be real here. He had 27 touchdowns and seven interceptions. End of quote. True. However, it does not sound like this guy regrets kicking him to the curb. Quote, it's just experience. The locker room knows who's there by merit and who's there by status. They know. When you lose that part of it, now you're sacrificing everything you've built up to this point. End of quote. That right there is an amazing statement. I mean, I love a GM saying, the guy was productive for us. I mean, look at his numbers. But I couldn't bring him back because he would have wrecked the locker room. I mean, Wentz is already gone. They've already kicked this guy to the curb. He's lying motionless in the street. And they continue to stomp on his head. And I'm actually fine with it. Because that right there is the worst thing that you could say about a quarterback. Like, you know, there are quarterbacks who don't put up numbers, but their teammates love them, and they'll go to war with them. Carson Wentz is not one of those guys. He's the guy who puts up numbers, and apparently his teammates hate him. Like, if I'm understanding Boward correctly, he's saying that the locker room saw right through Wentz and saw right through that bullcrap, and that bringing him back would have been horrible and it would have destroyed what was left of the locker room. And again, what are we talking about? A guy with 27 touchdowns and only seven picks. Do you know how much you have to piss people off around you for the team to give up on a quarterback who has those numbers? And then you got Frank Reich. Reich himself was not exactly backing down either. Ultimately, there was consensus, right? We don't want to have seller's remorse, right? I think we had already determined that wasn't going to happen. This was well thought out. It was not a quick decision. I.e., it was a terrible decision, a terrible mistake. We all know it. We're all owning it. And now we're going to fix it. This is why I'm adding Reich to the list of coaches that you do not want to get on the wrong side of. And maybe not a guy that you would think about ordinarily like that because he's a good dude. A really good dude, but he's big, he's tough, and if you cross him, you are done. Wentz is a guy that he liked and brought in, but when Wentz jacked with his culture, Reich cut off his head. Listen, I know group photos are always a pain. Nobody likes taking them. But is it really the annual NFL head coach's photo if Bruce Arians isn't in it? I mean, one thing for Belichick to be better than that. How about B.A.? Well, yeah, B.A.'s better than that, too. How about Dan Campbell? Where the hell is Dan Campbell? There's no turds here. Where's Dan Campbell? How is that guy not in that pick? There isn't an assistant that can go up to their room or check the lobby bar or probably, in Dan's case, the gym. <sighs> like, I get the hood not being in. Hell, I couldn't care less if Mike McCarthy is or isn't, but no Arians? No Campbell? Oh, and one more thing. Hey, wise asses. No. Rit is not in Palm Beach. And in the coach's photo, that is Denver Broncos head coach Nathaniel Hackett, not Garrett Ritt. 
a.k.a. Dwight Eisenhower, standing in the back row of my studio right now. Why are you standing up back there, old man, to make sure the camera gets you? Damn right. That's how I roll. Are you banged up again? Just back there, standing for some reason. Yes, Hackett looks older than 42, like Rit. But I promise, Rit is not meeting with the monotone mumbler, Andy Ryad, and the rest of the fellas on the beach. Talking X's and O's and engaging in trade discussions. Rit is here, standing up in the back row, doing whatever the hell it is he does here. But damn, Rit, I'll tell you what. Now I know who you should be for Halloween. Hackett. Or Hackett should be you. Because neither of you would have to do a damn thing in terms of getting a costume other than walking out the damn door. Game on. You're him. He's you. Thank you, Mr. President. <laughs> Clones, what do you want when you're craving protein or you need more energy? Not bars, not sugary snacks, not energy drinks. You want beef. Pure and simple. Where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your old man's jerky. Shriveled, dry, tasteless. Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. It's tender, it's tasty, it's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for its relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein. It comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest. It goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. Clones, if you do not see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper or what's your beef? Russell Gage Jr. is my guest. Russell, it's good to have you on. How are you? All right. How you doing, man? Good, dude. Good. So you've had a few days for it to sink in. How does it feel to hear yourself introduced as a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Uh, it feels good, man. It feels good. You know, ready to get to work. I'm excited about the opportunity, really. All right, so the story is interesting because if we were to go back to the start of the legal tampering period, the story is you're out taking the trash out. You get a call from Tom Brady. Now, when you get a call from Tom Brady, what were you thinking when you got that call and during that call? Um, I was thinking that it wasn't real. I, I, I had just recently seen some fake uh, news on uh, one of my social media. Uh, I think it was either Twitter or Instagram. And so, you know, me and my fiance were kind of laughing about that. And so then I get a call, and I'm I'm just kind of sitting here looking like how ironic that I could possibly be getting be getting pranked right now uh, in the same in the same breath. So um, originally, I didn't believe it was true. I didn't I didn't think it was real. Um, you know, until you know he carried on and explained. Um, you know, and. I, you know, the realization kind of came. I, I didn't even have much of a response more than just disbelief. <laughs> Dude, I think that is so funny. I think that's awesome. Like, you and your fiancé seeing this on your feeds and going, man, that's funny. Look what happened to that dude. Yeah, it's funny until it happens to you. So then you realize, hey, man, what's going on? Could this be happening to me? When did you finally realize, like, this isn't a joke. It's not a prank. I'm not getting clowned. This is Tom Brady. And then when you realized who it, who it was and that it was the guy, what did that feel like? Um, 
you know, I think I realized it once he, you know, kind of explained his plans and, and everything, um, how detailed he was. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, at that point, I'm like, you know, this definitely has to be um, who, he, who he says he is. Um, and like I said, I was just in disbelief. Like I, I was kind of just sitting there shocked that, okay, you know, I mean, you know, he explained that, you know, he kind of admired my game. Um, uh, that was a huge, huge honor. That was a huge that was a lot of a big like so much respect uh given to me for for such a high quality player um yeah, I was just kind of in disbelief man i I didn't really have much many words to say other than you know I really appreciate it, and you know that you know i had to I had to relate this to my age. <laughs> Dude, I think this is a great story. And now I'm glad that you could relay it to the country. That is an awesome story. Russell Gage mm-hmm. is joining us. You know, when you talk about how it felt good to have him admire or acknowledge my game, they know your game. They know your game for, among other reasons, you lit them up for 11 receptions and 130 yards in December. What do you remember about that game and that day? Uh, crazy enough, I remember dropping a touchdown pass at the end. <laughs> wow. Um, But... You know, I just remember kind of being on the same page with Matt. Uh, a lot of the game, we talked about it before. I had a lot of things um, in the game plan that, you know, we wanted to achieve. Um, you know, it was it was definitely productive. I had a little bit of, of some running after catch um, opportunities. Um, you know, um, I remember talking to other guys afterward. You know, I, I, I always watch uh, uh, Chris and, and Mike and those boys play. Um and they're so efficient, they're so consistent. And, you know, I remember talking to him afterwards, and I wanted to kind of get that across to him, not knowing that I would play with him at some point. So um, it was definitely some takeaways from that game um, and some, some good things, too. I think that's really interesting. So you're going to get a chance right now to play with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. And even Godwin, he was fired up when the team signed you. He said, quote, I feel like the last couple of years, anytime we play Atlanta, me and Mike will be on the sidelines talking, quote, yo, I feel like Russell Gage is nice. I feel like he's not getting the love that he should. End of quote. I'm curious, have you heard him say that before? And if not, now that you hear that, what's your reaction to it? Uh, no, I had not heard him uh, say that, uh, you know, and, uh, man, that's, that's, that's real cool, you know. Um, like I said, you know, those guys, uh, they're so efficient. They're so um, good at what they're doing. You know, they always seem like they're on the same page with, with Brady. I mean, I could say the same thing. Every time we play them, they go off, um, which they go off on just about anybody. Um, you know, but it definitely feels good to hear something like that from, um, you know, two great players like that uh, or a great player like that. Um, you know, and I'm excited. I'm excited to, to team up with those boys and really, really get the ball rolling. Russell Gage, my guest. So you've got this great opportunity. Listen, if you don't mind, and we've got a little bit of time left, if you're comfortable, I want to ask you about what happened in August of 2016 when a catastrophic flood hit your hometown of Baker, Louisiana. I bring this up because you were in college at that time. You got a FaceTime from your younger sister. What do you remember about that? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was my older sister. Okay. And yeah, she, she FaceTimed me, and... I just remember being in disbelief. Um, I tell people all the time, it does not, well, I told them all the time, like, you know, it never, it doesn't actually flood out here um, where where we live. It's flooded in, you know, New Orleans during the Katrina, but, I mean, people actually took shelter here because that just doesn't happen, doesn't really happen here. And I just remember being in disbelief um, 
of her showing me water in, in my mom's home. And, you know, then kind of turning on the news and seeing everything flooded. I actually looked outside and could see some streets flooded. And I just remember uh, kind of going in that protect mode, like how do I get to them? How do I help them get out and get, you know, make sure they're safe? Um, and, you know, from that point on, I just kind of reacted. I know my mom always tells me, about how crazy it was and just at the moment it just wasn't crazy um, to kind of go and try and, you know, in a sense rescue them. It just seemed the, the right thing to do. It seemed like anybody would do that. Yeah, but, dude, um, I want to be very so, clear about this. Like, what you did, though, you went into protect mode. You were like, hey, whatever it takes, I got to get back. I got to get there. You and your roommate drive from campus to your hometown or as close as you could get. You had to walk the last seven miles to your home, and then the right. two of you got on horses— and then flagged down a rescue boat and got your family to safety. Is that how that went down? Yeah. So, you know, I, it, that wasn't the plan when we left. But everything, I think, it, it became more of improvising each step along the way. You know, they, there was a block off. So then it was like, okay, we're going to walk. Um, and as you're walking, you're like, okay, it's not that bad. The water's not that high. I think it was ankle deep when we first started. But when we finished, it was, it was chest. It was up to our chest. Um, by the time I actually got to my mom's house, again, some something that we really didn't, probably didn't think through. Not saying, I mean, we, we weren't going to turn back. I mean, we were probably four or five miles in once, once um, you know, we realized, okay, this is probably a little more serious than we thought. But, um, like I said, at that point, we, you know, we were, we were all the way in. I really thank my roommate for really, because, you know, he didn't have to do any of that stuff. Um, but he, he did. He, you know, came. I was here his time, and, you know, I, without him, he, he had the idea of getting on a horse. Dev, Dev is a real country boy, so he had the idea of getting on the horses. Um, you know, I mean, they were my horses, so. Um, but it worked out, you know. It worked out for the best, for sure. Incredible, incredible. So let me ask you this. Your family loses pretty much everything in the flood. You're not able to get back until two days before the 2018 draft. What was it like then to be back home and to be able to be there when you were drafted? Oh, man, it was great. I remember, you know, we we didn't have much stuff um, in our home, but we had a TV. <laughs> we got a TV. We had a couch. We had, like, very few things. And, you know, I think most people sat, like, around uh, around on the floor. I think we had some of us sat on the couch and um, kind of watched my name pop up um, when it did. But it was a blessing, man, um, to kind of be in that moment. Um, you know, knowing that everything that had happened, you know, there were some people that was that had to recover. I just last year, I just uh, heard about someone that just finished getting, you know, situated from that flood. Um, so uh, I, I really look at it that, you know, we were blessed in the situation to be where we were for the draft like that. My man, you're the best. Russell Gage joining us. So you're a sixth-round draft pick coming out of LSU. There's so many guys who get drafted so much higher than that that never even make it to the NFL. You're now entering your fifth year. You've got a new contract, a nice contract, the greatest quarterback of all time. Really quickly, what's it feel like? Do you feel like you finally have arrived in the league? Um, You know, uh, my brain is waking up, Russ. So, and, and it means so much to, to me to – I've started from the bottom and to kind of get where I am now, but uh, I'm definitely not finished. I, I, I definitely, um, I think I've, I've, I've opened eyes in the league. I think people notice and, and, and recognize me as okay. He can play, um, but I want to 
um, you know, show people that I can play at, 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 an, at an elite level um, that I'm capable of. So, um, you know, it's, it's satisfying to kind of be where I am, but at the same time, it's not satisfying. I have more work to do for sure. Ask me, those who know, know, and I guarantee you opened a lot of eyes with that conversation. Russell Gage Jr., my guest. Russell, so good to have you on. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate that conversation. That was awesome. Man, thanks so much for that. And thank you, man. Parents, it is time. Time to finally cross off one of the most important things on your to-do list, life insurance. Fabric makes getting a great term life insurance policy for your family quick, easy, and surprisingly affordable. You see, Fabric was built specifically for parents to help you manage your family's financial future like a parenting pro, stress-free. Fabric's new lower prices mean significant savings over other providers with great policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. And everything is on your schedule with Fabric because it's all online. Less than 10 minutes to apply and you can be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. Then, just personalize your quote to fit your family's needs, and you'll be set with high-quality, affordable protection for your family. There is no risk to apply today. Fabric has a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Protect your family with term life insurance right now in just 10 minutes. Apply today at meetfabric.com slash roam. Again, that's meetfabric.com dot com slash r-o-m-e to start protecting your family right now m-e-e-t fabric.com slash roam fabric insurance agency policies issued by vantas life not available in new york and montana prices subject to underwriting and health questions i understand that the slapping incident at the oscars stole the show and that the impending news cycle after that was all about that right understandably so Will Smith slapping Chris Rock and then F-bombing him on live network television was one of the most incredible moments in the history of television. Unfortunately, it overshadowed so many other critical moments during that show. People who deserve shine and run did not get it because of Smith v. Rock. But I'm going to tell you one guy who probably is not sweating it, who might actually be celebrating it, and that is none other than my guy LeBron James. Arguably... The greatest hooper ever. Inarguably the worst filmmaker ever. And that's not some hot take. That is a stone cold fact. Don't get it twisted. Space Jam 2 was never going to get an Oscar nomination. I get that. It's a cartoon basketball movie starring LeBron. However, at least it got some run and a shout out during the program. Disappointed that Space Jam 2 did not get nominated in the special effects category oh for that hairline they gave LeBron James. Oh my God, amazing. It was really good. Was it was good. really good. Ooh, dang. Regina Hall, absolutely savage. Good thing Braun was not in attendance. Or Will Smith would not have been the only leading man crying on Sunday night. Of course, Space Jam 2 wasn't anywhere near the Academy Awards. And honestly, that razzing was light compared to what Braun deserves for what he did. Light compared to what Braun deserves for that disgrace. Braun and everybody else involved in that catastrophe, that utter disaster, deserves a lot more than a razzing. But at least it got that too. 
like officially, as in the Golden Raspberry Awards, the Razzies, the awards that they throw to movies that do not deserve awards. Of course, if they're handing out awards to terrible actors in terrible movies, you knew LeBron would get a nom. And on Friday night, he turned that nom into a victory. That's right. LeBron James is the 2022 winner for Worst Actor. Again, not my take. A stone-cold fact. He won. Braun was the worst actor in Hollywood last year, which should only come as a surprise to anybody who never saw Space Jam 2. He was so bad, he didn't just win the worst actor. He also won worst screen combo. Officially, LeBron and, quote, any Warner cartoon character. End of quote, won the worst screen combo. That's how horrendous LeBron was in this movie. It didn't even matter which beloved character that they paired him with. He was so terrible, he dragged all of them down. Dragged them down like he dragged down the entire Space Jam franchise. So believe me when I say Braun earned his two individual awards. And Space Jam 2 earned the Razzie that they got handed for being the worst prequel, remake, ripoff, or sequel. Space Jam 2 deserves all that dishonor because Space Jam 2 was not just the worst movie of the year. It was one of the worst movies ever made. It might be the single worst movie ever made. It took an iconic franchise associated with the likes of Mike, Chuck, Larry Bird, Bill Murray... Help me. And it ruined the entire thing. Do you understand how hard it is to ruin a brand propped up by me and Michael Jordan? The acting would have to be so atrocious and the storytelling so incoherent that that would be impossible. (laughs) If there's anything to congratulate LeBron for, it's that astonishing achievement in horrendous movie making and that's why I have beef with the Golden Raspberry Foundation because as badly razzed as Space Jam 2 was on Friday night somehow some way that movie did not sweep the awards somehow some way something else won for worst picture I cannot even begin to imagine how horrible Diana the Musical must have been to beat out Space Jam 2 for suckiest movie. Who? I mean, admittedly, it does sound terrible. And it must be. It must be straight up garbage. Because Space Jam 2 didn't just ruin the Space Jam franchise. It set all of movie making back. And I don't mean 20 years. I mean forever. And yes, you may say, damn, Rome, bitter much? Yes, 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 I am bitter. But not for them not recasting me in the reboot of Space Jam 2. Believe me, I don't want to be anything near that. I am so glad my name is not attached to that bullcrap. You think I'd attach my good name to that bullcrap? Hell no, but yes, I am bitter. Bitter that he and they took one of the best things ever and made it arguably the worst thing ever. So yes, of course I'm bitter. And so is anybody else who will never get back the money they spent or the two hours of their life that they wasted watching that bullcrap. 
There are so many things that divide this country right now, but we can all agree on one thing. We can all agree universally Space Jam 2 sucks. Great baller, horrible movie maker. Best hooper ever, maybe. Worst movie maker, definitely. And now a message from Discover about customer service and common sense. When you have credit card questions, it is nice to have them answered by a real person. You know, somebody who can actually understand your issues and work to resolve them. In other words, what you do not need is a robot. And that's why Discover offers helpful U.S.-based representatives available 24-7. No wonder we call it live customer service. Discover, exceptionally common sense. Jermaine Samuels Jr. is my guest. Jermaine, really good to have you on. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good, dude. Good. So going back to the Final Four, you are. You've been there. You've won. We're a couple of days out. I'm kind of curious. You've been here before. What's it feel like to hear that you are going back? And what's preparation been like so far this time? Uh, it's honestly been, you know, a blessing. Um, we're extremely grateful to be in this position. Uh, we had time to, you know, celebrate a little bit. And now we're just really focusing on making sure that we're prepared for Saturday. All right, so I get this. You're looking ahead, not back. But if I could get you to look back for one minute, you had an enormous game in that win over Houston to advance to the Final Four. You did that against a really, really tough Cougar team. What was the key to your success in that game? Um, I think the key to my success was making sure that I was just reading uh, you know, my teammates and trying to make the right plays at the right time. Um, and also just focusing on, on making sure that I was playing Villanova basketball and defending and rebounding. Jermaine Samuels Jr. is my guest. I was going to just suggest that the thing about your game is it seems like you do whatever needs to be done at that time, and we can go back to that, but I want to follow up what you just said. I want to make sure I was playing Villanova basketball. How would you define Villanova basketball? I would define Villanova basketball as playing hard, smart together, and with pride for 40 minutes for your teammates and coaches. Um, and it's not about winning the game or you know fear of losing the game. It's about maintaining that consistency and making sure that everybody else follows along in the same footsteps. Hmm. Jermaine Samuels joining us. And then I go back to the other point. It just seems like over the course of your time there, you just do whatever the team needs at that moment. Like if the team needs boards, you go get boards. If the team needs points, you do that. If the team needs defense, you do that. How much pride do you take in your versatility and your ability to impact the game in so many different ways? Um, for me personally, I take a lot of pride in that. That's, that's one thing I, I learned that I, that I have a special ability to do here at Villanova and for my team. And I always consider myself as a, as a team first player. And I just want to be able to do whatever it takes to, to make sure that my team is in the best position to be successful, whether that's rebounding, scoring, passing, defending, it doesn't matter. Um, I'll do whatever it takes for my teammates. Jermaine Samuels joining us. I'll give you another example. In the win over Michigan, for instance, you defended Hunter Dickinson. You were giving up roughly six inches and 30 pounds to him, but you were able to really limit his impact. And then you went for 22-7 and seven on your own. Jay Wright said, quote, it was awesome. We were really asking a lot of him on the defensive end. End of quote. I'm curious, in that game, what was that battle like for you both physically and mentally? Um, it was a lot, honestly. Um Dickinson is a a, cra a great player, uh, and he has crazy uh, skill in the post and great timing. So it was a lot. It was a lot, but at the same time, I knew that I had my teammates around me to help me out. 
And, you know, when you have that going on, um, coach, coach instills that confidence in you, it, you know, you, you can't help but try to give everything you can for, for him and, and my teammates as well. So, um, I was just happy I could, I could impact the game on both ends while guarding him. You know, obviously, you're a guy who sets the tone. You're a guy who leads from the front. I'm curious, I mentioned off the top that you won an NCAA title back in 2018. What did you learn from that trip that you can apply this time around and share with your teammates who have not been through it? Um, the one thing that, that I can apply from this trip is the, the importance of, you know, sticking, staying focused to what, what uh, we're really here for, like, the tournament, the, the Final Four is a great experience. There's so much going on. There's so much to pay attention to. And it's a great overall venue. It's one of the greatest venues in the country. But um, it's a very important not to get caught up in that. And I think that a lot of our guys have that have not been there besides me, Colin, and, and Damir. And so I think, you know, sharing that knowledge and, and keeping these guys focused is going to be very important. It's got to be tough, like, right? How do, you, how do you know how to deal with it if you've never dealt with it? Um, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I I would say the most important thing is, you know, to rely on your habits, rely on the work that you put in all year. Um, that's what you have to rely on. You can't, there's no promises that, you know, your shot's going to go in. There's no promises that you're going to win, but you can promise yourself and your teammates that you're going to give it all up for each other. And that's, that's the biggest thing that you can rely on. Jermaine Samuels joining us. I love that response, by the way. I love that you just said you have to rely on your habits. I mean, that is such a profound thing to say, especially for a guy your age. You've said also that attitude is one of the staples of the program and that everybody uses attitude as the reset button. Personally, I'm really curious what you mean by that. Can you lay it out for me? What do you mean, and then how do you use attitude as a reset button? I mean, uh, um, when you're in the heat of a moment, whether that's in basketball, whether that's in life, you know, some things are either going to go your way or they're not going to go your way. And when it happens, it's already in the past. You can go back and reflect on it later on, but when you're in the moment, you have to move on. And, and how you approach your next step and your next move is all attitude is about. Your attitude on the next play, your attitude on, you know, the next test you might have to take, uh, the next quiz or, you know, whatever may be going on in life. Um, your next approach and how you how you look at it, how you set yourself up for it is the most important thing. And that's something that we try to embody as much as possible, you know, when we're all together and when we're on the floor. I think that is gold for a young athlete, for a professional athlete, for anybody in life. I mean, that's like life advice. That's not even basketball advice. I'm kind of curious, like, how often do you do that? I mean, do you do that a couple of times a day? Do you do that once a week? Do you do it every few games? For you personally, how often do you have to reset yourself? Uh, every single day, yeah. uh, truthfully, um, every, we all do it every single day. Um, every day we come into work, we try to get better. We know that we're not perfect. We're human, but we're trying to get better. And that's the goal. And you're not going to do great every time. You're not going to be the best at it. And, but at the end of the day, your goal is to try to be the best version of yourself. You can be the best team you can be by the end of the season and keeping that attitude, keeping that positive mindset is what gets you there and what can give you the best chance of being the most successful in the most difficult situations. My man, mindset is everything. That is such a good response. Now, this is a big Jay Wright house. I love Jay. I don't play for Jay, but I love talking to Jay. I have so much respect for Jay. What is it like to play for him? What makes him special and unique? I think uh, what makes Coach Wright so unique is his ability, his ability to you know stay consistent and in, in his intensity 
with his players, the, the connection he forms with his players where it's all about getting better. He wants to get better. He wants to make everyone around him better. He wants everyone around him to be challenged and, you know, get the most out of themselves, including himself. Um, and when you, when you see that every day, you see the work that he puts in, you see, you know, what he expects out of not only just myself, but himself. And then it rubs off on everybody else on the coaching staff, the GAs, the managers, um, the program as a whole. Everyone wants to get better, and no one's just content with where they're at. And that's how, you know, we're able to, to you know, embody basically his mindset and adopt it as our own. Jermaine Samuels, my guest, you know, it's like the word gets thrown around so much but he's authentic, like he's real. And if you watch him even from the outside, you could see he got so emotional talking about you in the post-game interview. So I think I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it's real. That emotion is real. And then speaking of emotions, watching it on TV, Jermaine, it was brutal. Brutal to see Justin Moore go down the way he did with the injury and then to hear that it was a torn Achilles. What was it like for you to see one of your brothers go down that way? Yeah, it hurt a lot, honestly. Uh, it was kind of numbing. I didn't know exactly what had happened. Um, I thought it was a normal ankle injury. Um, it kind of it kind of reminded me of uh, last year with Colin, in a, in a sense where, you know, you see your brother go down and you don't know exactly what's going on, but you know you just want to get the job done for him. Um, it was a lot um, at once, and it was kind of hard to celebrate the victory knowing that he was going through so much, but... Um, I'm just glad that he's he's in a better spot mentally and, and, and physically. That's the thing. So then the team moves on. Before I let you go, you already play with a short rotation. So how do you go about making up for the fact that he will not be out there Saturday night against Kansas? Uh, we make up for it by, by still doing the same things we always do, playing Villanova basketball, um, making sure that everyone is is aware that no matter what, everyone puts the same amount of work in and working as everyone else, the guys that don't really play as much, the guys that sit on the bench, they've been working just as much as we are. They honestly help us prepare for a lot of the games that, you know, we've been playing all year, the tough matchups. So those guys are ready to go. Those guys are confident, and they're ready to make an impact. All right, so let me ask you this quickly. Two things jump out watching you guys play is, and you talked about this, you guys are so precise. And the other thing is part of Villanova basketball is being really physically tough what are your strength and conditioning sessions like? And then how much does that show up on the court in March and in April? Do you notice a difference between your conditioning and that of the guys you're going up against? Um, I think that's a, a great tribute to, to our strength coach, uh, John Shackleton. He's relentless when it comes to making sure that we have the right nut- nutrition, um, when it's right, the right time to lift, what we should be working on, whether it's our lower half of the body or our upper half. It's so meticulous and it shows up in game time, and then when it comes to practice, making sure that we're well rested. I mean, uh, well rested, and um, focusing on certain aspects of the game and certain situations that we will be in, and then you know, coach pushing us and challenging us and focusing us, making us focusing on uh, concentrating on what we need to to accomplish for the day. Um, I think it's all attributed to that, but um, at the end of the day, we just try to not make excuses and we try to compete and and play for one another. Jermaine, one last thing. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you. I've said, I'm not going to say something to you now that I haven't already said to Jay, and I always say it to Jay. I've got profound respect for Jay, but the thing that I really respect about Jay is his crew. Mook, 
Buff and Bob Craig. Do you know these dudes? Because I've never met these dudes, and I want to meet these dudes, and I want to know if they live up to the hype. They have to, right? Do you know those guys? Who? Say, say, the, say the names Mook, one more time. Mook, Buff, and Bob Craig. These, this is Jay's crew. Like, they're legends, these guys, apparently. Maybe I have. Maybe I have. I'm going to take that as a no, no bro. I'm going to take that as a no. That, that's incredible, man. I got I to gotta find out about these guys. Every time I bring them up, Jay's like, oh, dude, they love you. I'm like, I love them, and I've never met them. But you don't know them. <laughs> no, I don't think I do. All right. That's cool. That's all right, dude, because you're, you're going to. If and when I get back there to see those guys, I'm going to bring you with me so then we both know them, all right? Sounds like a plan. <laughs> Man, it sounds like a plan. Jermaine Samuels Jr. is just working his plan, planning his work, working his plan. He's already got an NCAA championship and a look at another one. I just had to ask the question, man. Sorry to put you on the spot. Listen, great talking to you, Jermaine. Thank you very much. Have a great week, and I'm looking forward to seeing you on Saturday. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake or eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper instead. Why Old Trapper? Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender and made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. Old Trapper is a family-owned business. They take their smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Like, who wants dried, tough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper, though, is the real deal, and it comes in four amazing flavors. Old-fashioned, teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy. So the next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. That way you can see the quality that you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you do not see it, clones, be sure to ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? Ian O'Connor. Ian, it's so good to have you back. How are you? Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you, Ian. The reason that I wanted to get you back is you and I did talk when the book dropped last month, but I wanted to get you back on because so much has happened between then and now. Before we get to the Final Four, I want to ask you this, Ian. When Duke lost Coach K's final home game, what did you think of how he and the team handled that moment overall? I don't think he handled it uh, very well, actually, Jim. If you look at it, he basically told the uh, crowd, the home crowd, to shut up. He rebuked his uh, his own team, and even the, the former players who all came back and gave up their weekends to celebrate him, he threw a jab at them, too, in the stands. So I think that uh, he had to recover from that. His team did as well. They ended up getting to the ACC tournament final in Brooklyn and losing to Virginia Tech. And I really think at that point, I would not have been surprised, Jim, if they had lost in South Carolina in the first or particularly the second round against Michigan State. That is the point where they grew up in those final five minutes, down five points to a mediocre but really tough and physical Tom Izzo team that that presented them a real test. And I think most people sitting there who had watched Duke a lot this year, and I had seen them about 30 times already, were, were really surprised, if not completely shocked, that they pulled that out and showed that kind of end game toughness. I, I actually believe that Coach K was surprised that they did that as well. He would never admit that for public consumption, but just the look on his face after that game and just the way he expressed himself, it almost seemed like he was flabbergasted that they grew up in the nick of time. Ian O'Connor is joining us. His latest book is Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski, and that book is out right now. So, Ian, if you had to guess or even if Coach K, if you put the question to him, how did they get past all that? How were they able to get past that and grow up in that moment or show that kind of grit and toughness when they had not previously? 
it really helped to have those uh, five days or so of practice after losing to Virginia Tech in, in Brooklyn. I think that just to get back to the defensive fundamentals, and, and all of a sudden, Jeremy Roach became a player, a quarterback at, at the point that we just haven't seen for, for most of the year. And, and watching as great as Bancaro is, and to me sometimes he looks like Ben Simmons with a jump shot, I think there were big stretches of, of games where he would just disappear. He would float away into nothingness for 10, 12 minutes. And, and he's really talented, and he seems like a nice young man. But I, I just couldn't understand when that would happen. But in this tournament, and in those uh, five minutes against Michigan State, and Roach made some incredible plays going to the basket. And Ben Carroll just looked like a top two or three NBA draft pick, which is what he was advertised to be. So – those things coming together, Keels made a big shot, which surprised, I think, a lot of people on that three, and, and that's how they advanced to San Francisco. You know, Connor, joining us, you know, it's interesting you said that about Bancaro. I do not disagree. In fact, I talked to Seth Greenberg on my podcast at length prior to the tournament, and he said similar things about him as well, but when they've needed him most, he has really shown up. What about Coach K? Like, he's made some coaching decisions during this run as well that are really interesting. Like, he switched from man-to-man to zone against Texas Tech. Knowing his love of that man-to-man defense, what do you make of the change, and what did that say about him? I, he's, he's been one of the great adapters of all time. And maybe that's an understated part of his legacy and career. And I do think he's the greatest college basketball coach of all time. I would put him slightly ahead of John Wooden because he's had to adjust to so many different things in college basketball, particularly the one-and-done era of the sport. But it showed that he listens to his players. And by the way, even in the Olympics, Beheim, Jim Beheim told me when he would suggest zone – Coach K would listen, and Dan Tony, when they made suggestions, Mike listened. He's a, he's a really good listener, and I think he realized, okay, uh, we're getting beaten up here by an older, more physically mature team in Texas Tech. We need to go to his own and alleviate that a little bit. And by the way, when his players pleaded with him to go back to man-to-man later in that game, he listened to them as well and went back. And I asked him after the game if he ever thought – he would coach long enough for a group of players to have to convince him to abandon a zone. And, and you know, it's, it's just right. knowing his defensive history, that was pretty stunning. That, that is stunning. Ian O'Connor is joining us. He's a New York Post sports columnist. Also, that book is still out, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. You can get that right now. So, Ian, if you had to guess, what do you think his sense or what's your sense as to what his emotions have been like during the tournament? Is it just another tournament where it's always really, you know, there's got to be that great sense of urgency? Or are there some extra emotions that are coming out at times that you can see? Oh, no question, Jim. The, there are extra emotions. And, I mean, there's been almost a boyish joy about him and glee that his final journey – He's been carried this far by this group of players. I really don't know if he expected this deep down, if he really thought this was possible. And obviously if he lost in North Carolina, that's a tough way to end his career in the Final Four, particularly after losing to them in the final game in in Cameron. But it's a little different this time around. In, In that Cameron game, Carolina had absolutely nothing to lose. They were playing with house money. They actually do have something to lose in this game. They have a chance to, to lose a shot at a national title and go home. So I think the dynamic in this matchup in New Orleans is different. But I've seen him look a bit looser and just a lot more joyous than I think. In, and I was there in the 91-92 back-to-back championship teams, Hurley, Leitner, Hill, that group. I don't remember him ever 
seeming this way in terms of what he's projecting the enjoyment like he is right now. All right, so Ian, can you explain, like we have Duke in North Carolina, the fact that they're going to play in the tournament, much less the Final Four, is amazing in and of itself. How would you sum up what the rivalry means to the two schools? I mean, is there any way really even to explain it? I think both sides could would tell you, Jim, that uh, they never really want this matchup in, in the national championship game. It's almost happened in 91, as you recall, and in uh, and certainly here in the Final Four, because the loser has to live with that forever. When the Yankees lost to the Red Sox in an historic fashion in 2004, and I was there for that, it's not like Yankees fans live six to eight miles away from Red Sox fans. Well, <laughs> the loser of this game, you, you're – you go to the grocery store with, with the opposing fans. I mean, you live with these people, literally. So it's going to be very, very difficult to handle because of the proximity of the schools and the fan bases. So there is just so much riding on this game uh, beyond the, the end of Coach K's career. And so I think that separates it from other rivalries. It's so well said. Let me ask you this. What is your sense as to what that rivalry means to Coach K? I mean, I want to be careful how I say this, but – does he hate North Carolina? Yeah, from a competitive standpoint, I think he does. And if I were him, the way I'd look at this, Jim, is say, if we somehow lose this game, I have five national titles. That's the same amount as Roy Williams and Dean Smith combined. Okay, I think he's 50-47 and 47 against Carolina in his career, so if he loses, he still has a winning record against Carolina. So I know the Tar Heel fans will have a field day if they send – Krzyzewski into retirement at the Final Four and the first time these schools have ever met in the NCAA tournament. But still, I don't think it's really going to have a major impact on his legacy. I think that, uh, no, there's, there's so much on the line here that hopefully both both teams don't feel the players, don't feel the weight of all that pressure, and they go out and play freely and, and really play a a wonderful game that's worthy of the rivalry. I think that's what everybody wants. Right. And, Ian, your point about Coach K, I mean, it's so true, right? He's got the five national championships, the greatest of all time. But you know how these guys are. You know how they all are. They remember the ones that don't go well as opposed to the ones that go great. I thought that you posed a really interesting question on Twitter. You said, quote, if the basketball gods offer this deal to Coach K, we'll guarantee your Duke team a victory over North Carolina in the semis, but unfortunately also guarantee your Duke team a loss to Kansas Villanova in the final would he secretly accept it I actually love the question how would you answer that Ian <laughs> with much deliberation I would say no I don't think he'd take the deal when you're this close to a national title I think he'd say I, I can't accept the loss a guaranteed loss Monday night I'm taking my chances Saturday against Carolina and, and again, the dynamic is different from the Cameron game. Carolina does have something to lose here, so they might be a little tighter than they were in Durham in, in that uh, great win they had. So, uh, but both teams, I think, are right now playing the best. It, it's amazing how the tournament is. Gonzaga did not play one good game in this tournament. They played their worst basketball in this tournament. And yet North Carolina, for instance, is playing its best basketball, and I think Duke is as well. So I do believe the winner of that game will win the national championship, but I have no idea who will win that game. It really is going to be a pick em, and hopefully it'll go down to the final possession. Ian O'Connor joining us for a few more moments. That point about Gonzaga you just made. So how would you explain the fact that they really did not play one really good game in the tournament? I, I, I don't know. I, I think they have to look at – listen, the, the last six, seven years, they've had great runs in the tournament. They just can't win that game, the big game. Now – they remind me of Duke in the late 80s 
when Duke was known as the Buffalo Bills before the Buffalo Bills. They couldn't win the big one, and they finally broke through against Vegas in 91 and then Kansas. I, I don't know why they can't break through. I, I can't explain it. it. Does it have something to do with the fact that even though they play a very good non-conference schedule, their conference just isn't maybe tough enough to prepare them for those moments in the tournament where you have to, like Duke did against Michigan State, just find something deep down in the final minutes to, to survive a game. And so they just haven't been able to, to do that to win the national title. But if you keep knocking on the door long enough in sports, eventually you'll break through. And I suspect that Gonzaga will here in the next two, three years. You know, Connor, my guest, Ian, one last thought, if you don't mind, shifting to another great story. As you've said, you spent dozens of nights at St. Peter's back when they were drawing less than 1,000 <laughs> fans, literally less than 1,000 fans for home games. What were those nights like, and then what was it like for you to see them make the run that they made this year? Jim, if you were ever in that building, that, that, that facility, might have been the worst division, one of the worst division one uh, gyms in America, and that campus. And to think that someday that that school could produce a team and that gym and that facility that would beat Kentucky – alone, never mind the rest of the run they had, is just mind-boggling. Yeah, I was there at nights where they had uh, five, 600 people, and it was hard to believe it was even a Division One game because it certainly wasn't a Division One environment. It was like a high school game. And so the run was uh, – I think it's the, the greatest Cinderella run in the history of college basketball. When you really look at the – I think it was much bigger than UNBC beating Virginia 16-1. and and others that we've seen George Mason going to the final four because St. Peter's has no budget, no facilities, no real campus to speak of. And, and so, yeah, I, I would put it just like I'd say Krzyzewski is, is the greatest coach ever. That was the greatest run ever from a low seat, without question. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I don't know what's more amazing, the fact that they did that or that you were there covering them at one point. <laughs> well, I went there as a fan. I had a friend who graduated from St. Peter's. So I was more there as a fan in the 80s and, and 90s with my buddy Pat, who's a St. Peter's guy. And I just would never, ever have believed that they could come out of that school and, and, and field a team that would beat Kentucky, which might have the best facilities and budget in America. So, uh, but yeah, it was a shame. I think if UCLA had beaten North Carolina, St. Peter's would have had a real shot to get to the Final Four. I just never liked that North Carolina matchup for them. Right. An amazing story. Top to bottom. He is a New York Post sports columnist. He is a New York Times bestselling author. And his latest book is a great book. It's out right now. Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. And you can get that. Ian, great to have you back. Thank you so much. And we'll do it again soon. Hey, my pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Rusty, what's going on? Ah, Jim Rome. You know, sorry for taking so long to chime in on this. (laughs) You know, buddy, I'm a bit perplexed as to how I feel about the whole Deshaun Watson thing. I want our boys to win. But at what cost? I got to go, Jim. <laughs> That's the UPS guy with my girlfriend in a box. That's not a call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. I feel like I've heard that call before. Good night now!